Welcome to another edition of Coping with COVID. We've got a very special guest here with us today, Eric Vaughn with the Hustle Fund. Before I get into that, though, I'm your host, David Smith. We do this series to help founders. You are so strong. I love it that you're here. You're fighting the fight. You're in it to win it. You're going to emerge stronger. We're going to do our little part to help by bringing startup experts Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon to help you get your questions answered. I'm an angel investor myself, former founder and CTO. And with us, we've got my co-host, Tapan Kataria. He's with Techstars and Backstage, and he has his own angel fund, and he's an entrepreneur. This guy's unreal. And we've got Amanda Lewin. She's a massive community builder in Detroit. She's the CEO and founder of Bamboo Detroit. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to have our friend Eric on today. Uh, Some of you might know we hosted Eric recently in Detroit, and it was a fantastic in real life event. We miss in real life events, but we're happy to be here online with you, Eric. And just a quick background on Eric. He's a general partner and co-founder of The Hustle. Before that, he was with 500 Startups. He spent time at Facebook. Uh, He has been a founder himself and started and sold his own company. So a lot of great insight and advice uh, from someone who's been through it and is investing actively right now. So we're super pumped to have you on, Eric. Um, we're going to hand it over to you. We'd love to hear from you for a few minutes on what you're doing with Hustle Fine and, and what you're seeing in the investment space. And um, go ahead. Yeah, Eric, what, is that, what does that investment landscape look like today? Everybody in here wants to raise money. And what, is it, what does it look like today? The answer to that can be described in just one word, scary. <laughs> yeah. If I were a founder, it's a bit of a scary environment right now. And we can talk through that a bit. Uh, but before I even jump into sort of sharing a couple of high level thoughts, uh, again, huge thank you to uh, these organizers, David Tops, Amanda. Uh, this is such a great series. I actually had a chance to meet them in person for the first time a couple months ago at Bamboo Detroit. Fell in love with that community uh, and the mission that you guys have there. And um, it's just a uh, a real privilege to be your friend and a participant in today's today's uh, cast. So thanks again for that. Yeah, that was fun um, being at Brakeman and, and talking about I think your Instagram days and and raising money and investing yeah. in startups. Yeah, you know, like uh, Detroit is, is you know a little bit of background. I guess I can start here too. Is just uh, so yeah. I grew up on on the west side, uh, in a very nice suburb called Bloomfield Hills, um, and you know in the eighties and nineties when I was there you know, eight mile was definitely the, the line that you don't cross. Right. It, it was like a, not a great time uh, to be uh, in the city and all sorts of problems with uh, the politics, uh, you know, of the administration uh, running the city as well. I'm sure there's still some of that too today, but you know, whenever, whenever I come back and I try to come back maybe one to two times per year since 2016, it's, incredible to see what, what the city has become and uh, the talent that's coming in to, to build it. Some of the greediest uh, folks I've met, some founders that we've had to, uh, an opportunity to back as well. So uh, it's it's been almost like a reawakening for me, just personally in my journey, journey. of course, for all the Detroiters that, that stayed around and are rebuilding the city. So uh, it's, it's an exciting scene. And if you're not from that community, I highly recommend uh, taking a, a trip, maybe trying to see whether Amanda will let you into her office for, for a moment. Let's poke around uh, her new newly renovated Bamboo Detroit. I can't uh, imagine Amanda there. turning anyone away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she looks sweet, but you can tell she is definitely a bulldog, right? So 
you know, if she has to lay down the law, be like, listen, listen dude. <laughs> exactly. So, um, maybe going back to, uh, so l- let me sort of, uh, share a little bit about what we do, but also like really finally answer the question, like what I, what I meant by like scary here. So hustle fund is in the business of what we describe as pre-seed stage investments. So when you think of, uh, the seed investment phase, uh, which is that early tranche of capital that most founders are trying to seek when they're building their venture, um, you can actually split it in three tranches, pre-seed, seed, and post-seed. They're actually now becoming discrete, um, uh, forms of capital before you raise your series A, B, C, and so forth. So <clears throat> pre-seed is this focus where it's usually your family members, uh, friends, maybe if, um, uh, primarily angels like David and Tops, who uh, are taking very early bets on teams based on potential, right? So when you're in the early formation, you have a great idea. You, you talk to these folks. Uh, very few institu- uh, ven- institutional venture capital funds are focused on this, this early tranche because it's considered the highest risk. But on, on the flip side, it's also considered the highest alpha, meaning like, you know, you come in, uh, the team is so early, valuations are definitely going to be lower because there's so much risk on the table. But if you're right, and then, you know, you invest in tops and he, he builds the next, you know, Google or something like that, then the, the upside is incredible, right? So, so like the, earlier um, are, the higher the risk there is and the higher potential for return, but VCs are, are moving a little bit later, taking less risk yeah. and less return. Yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of give you a sense of like uh, one heuristic that we're looking at when uh, just from like our own self-interest <laughs> when it comes to like the potential of a team is if we invest in David's business, founder David, um, at the pre-seed stage, and we decide that he's working in a market and seems to have the skill set to be a winner here. One very simple calculation that we have as a fund is do we think that at the post-money valuation, we can invest in David's business that we can 100 exit? So I'll give an example of this, just to keep the number simple, is um, let's say that we have an opportunity to invest $100,000 into David's company at a $1 million valuation, right? It's effectively, we're buying 10% of the business at a $1 million valuation. We want to understand whether you know David is working in a market that can support, let's say, a $100 million exit. Google buys him for $100 million or he IPOs for $100 million. And just for simple math, let's pretend we maintain a 10% ownership. That's pretty substantial. Like that becomes, you know, $10 million back to us. So sounds pretty good. Yeah, that's not bad. Right. And so um, our first fund was very small. It was $11.5 million uh, when we raised it back in 2017. And that would basically mean that that single deal returns our fund. Essentially that, uh, that single small investment that we made relatively small uh, was able to pay back the original principal mostly to our investors in this in this scenario. So here's where the where it gets really interesting. The, the higher the valuation, uh, the higher a threshold of conviction you need to have, but also usually the less uh, opportunity for you to hit that the, the multiple. So if I have to invest in Dave's company, let's say now at a $10 million valuation, that means we need to have conviction that he can build the $1 billion business. And those kinds of exits are rare, right? I mean, like you don't see billion dollar exits every day. So it takes a lot more conviction. Um, in addition to like that, the higher the valuation goes, the higher the multiple you need. So you need to be like really sure that this is a unique founder <clears throat> in the world. Yeah. So, uh, and, and expanding on this a little bit, like the expectation for what ideal multiple the invest- investor is looking for changes at stage too. So if it's series A, it might be more like 25X to 50X. If it's more series B, it's less like 10X or something, five to 10X. If it's series E, like right before the IPO, maybe it's like 
1.5x, right? But you're trying to qu- quickly flip it like within six months or a year or something like that. So um, that's a starting, that's something that I really challenge, I think this audience to just remember is like, you know, depending on the type of investor you're, you're, uh, you're pitching to and an understanding of what stage they primarily play, um, you might be able to sort of find ways of crafting your narrative to fit, I think, the economics of what they're trying to seek, right? So um, I, I, that's kind of a weird way of introducing, I guess, this, uh, this world of, of like what's scary right now. So yeah, yeah, let's, yeah, let's maybe set the stage for, I guess that's a precursor to how investing works. And then, you know, what is it like, you know, right, right now, what, what compared to how it was, I don't know, yeah. four weeks ago, five weeks ago. So um, I want to actually go back in time a little bit. Okay. So I think it was like 2008 or 2009. I can't quite remember the year. I think it's what, but like, I remember waking up and then like looking at the news and seeing uh, that Lehman Brothers had collapsed. Right. And yeah. I was like, that's really interesting. Isn't that like a hundred year old institution? Right. Yeah, like August or September of 2008. Yeah. There you go. Thank you for that. Um, Dave's memory is much better than mine. So um, I actually marked that as the informal start of the Great Recession, right? It was starting to already form maybe arguably a year before that with all sorts of different macros. But like, that's where I think like the public equities market really started to get hit. And then um, if you start from there and you look at the data for the next year, and I actually just reviewed this yesterday on, uh, through PitchBook data, valuations on startups actually um, very steadily declined until they hit their lowest point about four quarters after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So one year later, right? <clears throat> and then um, there's sort of a slow J curve where like it's starting to bottom out and then like um, uh, a bull run for 11 years that we could never have predicted after that. So a couple of things I think that are, are a bit scary is um, – you know, during the period of time while the where the funding sources were, or sorry, where where the valuations were dipping for founders, a couple of things were happening. Actually, there's a contraction in the number of funds that existed. I think it actually dropped by, I want to say, somewhere between thirty and fifty percent. Um, so, like you know, August the, of 08 and August of 09. August of two thousand oh nine. Yeah, they dropped like thirty so, percent. Like one out of three went out of business. They 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 just went out of business. They just never never raised another fund again. And, you know, and then in the, and the other sort of underlying um, thing that was probably more acutely felt by early stage founders too, or that, you know, angel investors just weren't investing at that point either. So, you know, if you have like rich guy, David, who's worth, let's say $50 million uh, one month ago, and then today he's looking, he's sort of shaking his head, but I know, no, I'm just kidding. But, but then like uh, today, you know, he looks at his, uh, his, his accounts and he's worth like $30 million. You know, he's not going to be necessarily in a risk-taking mindset in most cases. Although I think, you know, real guy, real David on this call is smart enough to know that you like buying into the dip is probably like one of the smartest things that you can do when you're um, going through these kinds of recessions because you can buy businesses and equities at a discount. Um, But for most people, like it it is emotionally difficult to see so much of your net worth go away. So VC funding sources dried up as well as angel funding sources dried up. So, um, Let's bring this back to like the scariness here for today. I think that the Great Recession for now is the best proxy to what we're experiencing today. Conditions are different. You know, we didn't lock down the government or sorry, the, the country and, and the economy in, in 2008. But um, at least, uh, you know, it, it was a very severe kind of recession. And hopefully it's that versus a depression. <clears throat> and um, 
I think the same kinds of things are starting to form. So March 1st, 2020, we were at like the very peak of early stage valuations. Founders actually commanded all the leverage. Uh, I think first round capital actually had a really startling statement back then. They said like, we used to spend 90 days running due diligence on companies that we invest in. And we've shrunk that to nine days. <laughs> that was a statement that was made, I think, by one of the, the general partners there. Um, today, what we're finding is that the, the pendulum has swung the other direction, where the VCs actually now seem to hold the keys because the funding sources are drying up, valuations are dropping, founders have fewer uh, options and have to work with fewer gatekeepers of capital. So, um, you know, expect, I think, those due diligence periods to expand again. It's not going to be nine days anymore. It could get closer to 90 days again. And so I think the funders- When you say founders have all their leverage, typically when I talk with founders, they don't feel like they've got leverage. They feel like they're going to, you know, people like you or me and saying, hey, you know, please, please invest in my company. Here's why you should invest in my company. They're not coming and saying, no, Dave, I'm not going to take your money at those terms, you know, you need better, give me better terms. So I, I love that call out, David, because um, I think what I'm speaking to is more true of like some founders I'm seeing in Silicon Valley specifically. Uh, across geographies is very different, right? Like there is founders that have like raised previous exits or something before or have a lot of tra- have a lot of sales or growing quickly, those kind of things. In some cases, yes. So if you're like a serial entrepreneur with like tons of uh, uh, track record, then, um, you know, and th- there are plenty of those. Like if, if Doug Song, like right now, was like, I'm going to start another company and it's going to be an ice cream shop or something like that. We're I, in. Pretty much every, everyone in the world is going to write him a check at this point, right? Even in the recession. So uh, there are those 0.1% outlier founders that I think will always continue to have that kind of leverage. But there are actually founders who don't actually have those characteristics. Um, maybe an impressive background, but maybe not the same kind of track record that actually commanded that kind of leverage, at least in Silicon Valley. Less so maybe in other markets like in Detroit and the Midwest and other places, but maybe some of that too. Isn't, isn't, that, case, unfair, like, isn't that unfair where people won't invest in somebody unknown, but they'll invest in somebody who's already been successful? Isn't that unfair, Eric? Why does that happen? So, yeah, this is actually one of my favorite things to talk about. So um, I, I don't actually discount that there is value when you've been a proven in uh, proven founder, right? Like, so if like Tops like has track record of building $3 billion exit companies, like I kind of will give him credit that he, he probably has the skill set to do that again. So like, I don't necessarily think that's unfair, but there's other things I think that, that, um, less I think that kind of profile are, are pretty unfair. So let's say that uh, Tops is in Silicon Valley and he just spent his, his the last seven years being like an engine, engineering manager at Facebook, right? That's a pretty ideal profile right now for a lot of early stage investors. They're going to say like, oh my gosh, look at this guy's pedigree. He built like all his stuff at Facebook for seven years. Do I actually give him credit though? Like full credit that his experiences and being successful in a large company like that with all those resources translates into becoming a gritty founder with no resources building a company? And in my perspective, the answer is no. Like, I actually think those are discrete skill sets. I don't think that it's not additive, but I don't think it's as additive as a lot of uh, investors think. But this is where I think uh, the unfairness happens. And we actually talked about this in the last Bamboo in-person discussion, which is 
when let's say the four of us were investors in a seed fund in a, in a very traditional manner, like we, we like to hear pitches, talk about data, and then make a decision of like a $500,000 million check out of the gate uh, into the teams. That's not necessarily how House Fund works, by the way. Mm-hmm. But because there's a lack of information about like the traction of the business that you're pitching, it's more of like an idea. The prototype is still kind of shitty. Um, the simple thing, to, the thing that we may be implicitly doing is actually falling back to what's safe. So what feels safe today is actually a lot of very in- interesting implicit bias that I think is undeniably connected to racism and sexism. So what feels safe would be safe is like, okay, I see this guy, Eric, who's pitching me. He's Asian, went to Stanford, has a computer science degree, is wearing a hoodie, is in his garage, <laughs> and he worked at Facebook, right? Like, it's like, check, 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 right? Let's talk to that hoodie. Um, That's Zuckerberg. <clears throat> yeah, it's like, you know, the hoodie's nice. So like, but like, um, I, you know, whether people are <clears throat> implicitly or, 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 sorry, explicitly recognizing this, I think it's actually playing a really serious factor because like how I look is actually a very common trope of what a founder is supposed to look like in Silicon Valley. <clears throat> now, the reality is this, which is great hustlers look like anyone and can come from anywhere. So let's say you're a black female founder out of Minneapolis, right? Uh, woman, underrepresented minority in a geography that's not Silicon Valley. Out of the great, out of the gate, I think a lot of my peers in, in Silicon Valley as investors are going to have a lot of trouble understanding that. Tops actually is sort of nodding his head because like he's got exposure to backstage and tech stars, which has also a naturally inclusive model. So like he's like, yeah, you know, I've heard this before. But um, that that profile of, of the woman I just described, who's actually a real woman I'm thinking of right now, um, is more than capable and is currently building a billion dollar business, right? But she doesn't necessarily fill that trope. So uh, that's, I think, one thing that's really unfair uh, about, like, I think institutionally where dollars have been being uh, have been placed in terms of, like, the very specific kinds of pedigrees and backgrounds of founders. And during this crisis, I think actually it kind of um, – it puts, puts more strain and even more pressure to fall into that trope of what feels safe. So if you're going to be placing dollars really carefully – uh, you're going to just feel like I'm going to be, it's going to feel safer in the hands of a Stanford computer science graduate at this point. Right. But uh, again, like that kind of background doesn't translate in my mind at all necessarily to like, does this person know what to do with very little resources to build a company from scratch, you know, go out there talk to like the, your customers who are in like a trailer in the parking lot serving like a fleet or something like that uh, with their fleet management software and so forth. So um yeah, let me let me sort of pause there because like I'm kind of going in sort of interesting directions here. I don't know if that's a, at the at the spirit of the question. No, here. I, really, I like. I think it was really important to go over all of that, Eric. And I think uh, one thing that you just said was I think for investors it might feel even more risky to be more open and more inclusive in their investments. But don't you think the hustlers are in that mentality? will prove a more profitable business model now, which is something we've heard that investors are looking for, right? They're sort of, uh, on a past talk, we talked about 2008, and in a recession, so models that aren't profitable or that are just spending money and wasting money kind of go yeah. out the window, and people who are who can build something and hustle and get profitability faster are going to be more ideal to invest in now. So in a way, I kind of see that as a strength, too. So... I, I really like that point, Amanda. Um, 
There's an article that uh, there's a concept I've been thinking about a lot, and there's an ar- article that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, summarizes this book I probably should read called um, on a concept called anti fragility. So the notion of anti-fragility is actually very interesting. Uh, if you want to read a great article about this, you can go to um, Alex Danko's blog. His last name is D-A-N-C-O. Again, the concept is anti-fragility. <clears throat> and I've been deeply thinking about this for the last few weeks. So what is anti-fragility? Essentially, it's this notion that in moments of extreme stress and economic shock, Certain companies that were perceived in more frothy and abundant times to be weak actually prove themselves to be very, very strong, and actually um, their weaknesses are actually strengths. So let me give you an example of that. Let's take actually um, some of the founders I meet in Detroit. So Detroit right now still has a really nascent uh, investor scene. Like you got Tops, you got David, but like, you know, there aren't that many like Silicon Valley-minded uh, angel investors yet in that market because it's still relatively new. So what I find is that you meet a lot more founders in Detroit who are uh, more bootstrapper oriented, right? Out of Not because they don't have a choice. It's just like I can scrape together what, what little capital I can, but I essentially need to bootstrap my way to profitability sooner and then to grow as a going concern. So here's where anti-fragility comes into play. Um, in earlier days, let's say in 2019, these uh, Detroit founders would have competitors in Silicon Valley where if the founders were really charismatic, great at fundraising, could quickly raise like tens, <clears throat> tens of millions of dollars and be like a really threatening competitor, right? And it didn't matter if they weren't that operationally effective because they're so good at continuing to fundraise that they can essentially like apply steroids to their weaknesses on their <laughs> business model by just raising more money and just like just rubbing it on, right? So let's say that we have, <clears throat> I'm going to pick on Tops here, like Tops, who's like the Detroit uh, bootstrapper, he's got like nothing, right? I mean, no fundraising, but like he's got a good bootstrapper mindset, a team of like five people, and he's running like a <clears throat> something in the fintech space. And then you have Jackass Eric, founder in Silicon Valley, who's like amazing at fundraising. He raised like $70 million out of the gate. And then, you know, I, I quickly raised, got like 400 people on my team in the last year. Now COVID happens. Okay. So uh, a couple things have com- immediately flipped. Like uh, the fundraising part of the vector is gone. So what happens with tops is like, he's kind of chilling. He's like, nothing really changed for me because I didn't raise any money before. I still have my lean team and I'm just going to continue to operate the way that we did before and, and just grow into the recession and into the dip. Eric, on the other hand, is really freaking out because I did not have a, uh, I've been relying pretty much on the lifeline and blood of the, the fundraising pipeline that I was really good at setting up. And now that that's no longer there, I'm forced to actually figure out how to build a going concern. So I have way too many people. I'm burning way too much cash. I'm probably going to be a little bit too slow. Honestly, founders are generally too slow at like laying off teams, rebuilding the business model and so forth. That's hard. And then, um, yeah. And so the chances that I go out of business, like in the next like year or two is actually fairly high. And tops in the meanwhile is kicking ass just like, you know, in his bootstrapper mindset, suddenly the the, the weaknesses are the strengths. Now here's a really interesting thing about anti-fragility too, is um, in this world, Tops is now actually going to have a really good shot of becoming the monopolist after this recession is done. And this is actually happening to one of our companies right now in the travel space. So exact same kind of scenario, 
super weak when it came to fundraising, very bootstrapper mindsetted. What they're doing right now is ridiculous. They are actually in the process of acquiring all their competitors for like $1 each. <laughs> and these are businesses that have raised upwards of $25 million, right? So they're just going to buy all the assets, all the traffic, hibernate for a little bit, like off of like a very lean team. And then when hopefully the travel space comes back, who knows when that is, like three years from now, um, you know, they actually have complete ownership over the entire market. So uh, I think that's maybe like the the start, the inflection to like where there's hope is like, just because uh, you're a founder who's feeling like slightly butthurt by the fact that like uh, you've had a terrible history of fundraising. And I was kind of one of those founders too, when I was uh, running businesses, this is actually your moment. Like the leanness of your team and the efficacy of your, your operating model is actually positioning you to take out all of your competitors, survive longer, maybe even buy them so that you could emerge as a monopolist out of this recession. Come out of this recession strong and hit that J curve that you talked about. You saw in the last one. Absolutely, man. There's, there's a, there's gonna be a, you know, uh, there's sort of like this emotional thing that uh, that, that I sort of view in this in these times, which is like the, the, the greater the stress that pulls down the rubber band on like the negative, when it pops back up, it also like I think shoots up like a parabolic like growth on the other end too. So like, you know. <clears throat> That don't don't quote me on this because I'm not an economist, but I just have to imagine like you know, um, when you come when you come out of the economy where, where there's like 30% unemployment in the next few months, like the upside when you start to ride that has to be very high because there has to be a number of those folks who just like get jobs back, consumer spending goes back, and so forth. But you're starting from such like a shitty low point, so only goes up. Maybe, that, maybe that's like the the glass half full interpretation of what might be happening. Yeah. Before we hop into questions here, we got a bunch of questions brewing. I love it. Keep them coming. Tops, you've been pretty quiet. What's what's on your mind? You've been taking all this in. What are you thinking? I uh, know. I mean, uh, kind of like what you just said earlier, the uh, making money on a downturn. I think uh, Jason Calcanis always says, like, you make money on the downturn and you collect in the bull market. And I think it's a really good analogy. And I really like that because a lot of founders need to hear that right now. Yeah. You know, so I appreciate that. And I, I, there's a lot that's kind of like troubling about that statement. And it's not a, a by the way, it's not like a criticism of you tops. So I have a lot of respect for you, but like, actually I've been starting to say that to myself about like, you make a lot of money in a downturn and so forth. But let, I mean, I want to just call out something that was like a problem for me where, where I started to stop saying that is it, under, underlying that is sort of privilege, like a lot of it. Right. I mean, if, if I have dry powder and money to invest in the downturn, like, like that's going to be freaking ridiculous. Right. Because like the upside is going to be so crazy, but it also assumes that I have like dry powder and money sitting around and like, uh, it is going to be kind of a, a very scary moment when like, let's say that like me and tops are building a consumer tech company, uh, that's going to be game game changing, but we, we need to ride out the recession where there's no consumer market that exists to buy it for some period of time with very little resources. And I do not want to deny that this is going to be like a rosy journey, right? It's just going to feel horrible for a long period of time until it doesn't, right? So, um, yeah, we all have to hang tough there. Yeah, yeah. hang tough, and then we'll come out come out strong, huh? Yeah, but I want tops to get a chance to rebut, a rebut too because I'm uh, I kind of jumped on. No, I mean no. I think uh, in terms of investor, I totally agree about the dry powder, right? But if you're a startup early stage, I think you have a chance of tapping into bigger market right now. So if you're a startup, just You've been bootstrapping for the past 10 months. Right now is the perfect time to take out your competition because right now, depending on what you're doing, but the cost of acquisition is going down right now. 
because there's so many people yeah. just sitting at home. Like great examples, like me and David have been talking about starting a <coughs> something like this for a long time, and right now everybody's just sitting at home. Yeah. Right. And we just ordered. Hey, we're gonna help you guys out right now, and we have 200 viewers right away. So I think yeah. that there's different advantage you can pull in different markets. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I do hope that this becomes like a media business or something out of this, right? Uh, great opportunity, I think, to to do uh, a play like this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, essentially, the it's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a few things that are sort of underlying this, too. I had a, so I see a, a group therapist every month, which I highly recommend. Um, you know, if anything, like. Yeah, if if you guys have the resources to do it, like any kind of therapy during these kinds of periods is is really crazily important, right? Um, so one of the things that I am kind of working through, I guess personally through this stuff, is just that um, I think a lot about like abundance mindset. Yeah. We kind of talked about this also like in the in person event as well. So. Um, if you have like some extra cycles and, you know, um, you know, you're a little bit bored, but you, you know, you're, you still have the ambition and, you know, you, you have the capacity to build something. It's great. And like, you should go ahead and do it. But there's even in my situation with like having like pretty decent resources, I find myself actually not in an abundance mindset at all. Like I got like two young kids right now. My wife and I are like really confused about how we trade off our days to, you know, coordinate looking after them because they're quite young. Um, so I find actually that my creativity and actually the speed of my brain is really slow, right? And I, I, I think like if you're in that situation where it's maybe you're struggling with childcare, maybe you're struggling with like a bad relationship or something else, like, like please be forgiving to yourself too. Like it, it's not like that. Uh, uh, you know, your your great idea has to happen necessarily like at this moment. If you have the capacity to do it, like please go ahead and do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's something that like, I, I, I just been struggling with and, uh, I'm sure like some folks are in the same boat too, with their kids, maybe they're single mom or dad as well. I don't even know how you do that. Uh, and, and so forth. Yeah. With that, with that, with that rosiness, that abundance mindset, let's get into the questions before we do that. We've had some people answering, answering the polls. Where are you at with fundraising right now? So we've got about 12% who are not thinking about raising right now. We've got 40, half of them, half are thinking about raising but not executing on it. And then the rest, about 30, 40% are thinking about a seed round or actively doing a seed round or series A or later. And with that, let's let's hop into the questions here. So we've got, we've got Ryan and he says, Eric, if you're a founder trying to find your first investor during this period of social distancing, where would you look? Great. So I would look at uh, these the, the, these three individuals uh, as well, like uh, David, Amanda, and Tops. Uh, <laughs> I've heard uh, rumors that uh, they're angel investors as well. So like, um, yeah, I mean, uh, a couple things. If this is like a very early tranche of capital, I think actually going for direct relationships or secondary relationships where you can get a very warm introduction is probably the way to go. I would mostly avoid VC firms. Uh but let me go back to that in a second. I think angels are actually going to be a better track, better tax because generally um, angels, because they're sort of investing out, out of their own balance sheets, just their own like money in their checking account, um, tend to be much faster decisions. 
it's just like, yeah, like, you know, I'm going to invest in tops. Like if he at least gives me my money back, that's great. If he doubles it, that's great. If he hundred X's it someday, that's amazing, but I'm not going to count on that. Right. I'm just sort of making a bet on the individual. And um, I do think that, you know, you're going to find faster results through that and it can still be done via zoom. Like, I, I don't think that, uh, I think there's a fair number of, of angels who are, you know, coming out of tech who kind of like understand like what's going on are very comfortable with like, you know, getting pitched on zoom that will just be able to execute that way. Let's go back to VC funds. Um, obviously you should talk to me, right? So like, we're still actively investing. We're making one deal a week, even now. And our, and our, right our, now. Wow. our investment pace is still to invest one, one deal per week. Um, I can talk about our model at some point, but like that, that's essentially what we do. Um, but most VC funds, I think are going to just take their time because they can, right. If they're going to be like, look, you know, tops, uh, this is great. Let's come back in like a month, you know, to see what your progress is. It's they're in an environment right now where they're realizing a couple things. One is valuations are dipping. So why would I actually deploy my dry powder right now when there can be like a real trough that hits around Q4 or Q1 next year, right? The second thing too is like, since there's no funding sources, like it's good, there's a good chance that Tops will still be fundraising one month from now. So why not just like wait and see if we can gather some more data before uh, we decide to deploy capital at the exact same amount of valuation and like, you know, with room left, right? So there's these kinds of disincentives that right now from institutional venture funds to invest. And uh, the nuance here, by the way, of a VC versus uh, like uh, angel investor, David is again, when you're playing with your own money as an angel investor, it's very different. Like if I have to wait 10 years and Amanda like doubles my money, that's okay. Like I actually am like thrilled by that. That's probably like a little bit better than the S and P 500 or something like that. If I put in an index fund or about the same and more fun. If that happens to me as, as a VC fund, uh, that's really bad. That actually rounds down to zero. Like we have to be swinging, swinging the bat as hard as possible to get that 100x outcome or zero. And the reason why is like that is just simply how the economics of VC funds work. Is like if you do not return the funds money at the very least and get into carry mode, which is essentially the profit thereafter, um, you know, you basically have no ability to raise future funds. And my career as a, as a venture, venture capitalist is over, at least with this fund. So. Um, doubling money actually adds nothing. Like if I give you 25,000 and, um, you turn into 50,000, 10 years later, uh, out of a $28 million fund that did absolutely nothing to me. Right. I'd rather have just like taken a bigger risk on a different founder. So, uh, just know that there are those, uh, misalignments on incentive on the VC front right now. Uh, and I would go like index very, very hard on angels. The only exception to maybe a VC fund would be like, you have such a warm introduction to like someone who's like was the best man at the wedding of like the, you know, the GP of this other fund. And, you know, in those kinds of extreme, extreme scenarios, then yeah, maybe it does make sense to, to spend some cycles there. I have a follow-up to that real quick. I think we heard in another talk that angels might be less hesitant because it's personal money. Um, so I'm curious, do you see an opportunity there where if angels are typically investing in a stock market right now, that's, Vile, like unpredictable, you know, how, and you don't have as much of a relationship. Do you see an opportunity there to convince them to maybe take a risk into investing in startup, or is it better to find angels that already have that background? Yeah, great question. So I think I even, I, I, I made that contradict, contradiction earlier. I mean, like overall, like angels are going to be less willing to, um, to deploy capital at this time, but, uh, 
there's a there's quite a diaspora, I think, of angels. So um, there are those who are maybe a little bit newer, a little bit less sophisticated, maybe more emotion driven. That for sure, like they're not ready to deploy capital. But there's still a fair amount who are who are looking at deals. I was just talking to another angel in Miami yesterday, and this guy is worth like a billion dollars, and he's looking for new deals right now because he basically shares, I think, the thesis that we're discussing now, which is like. I'm sitting on cash. I'm ready to like put it into founders at like incredible valuation from his perspective. So like, you know, can you send me some deals? And uh, my answer of course was like, absolutely I can. <laughs> um, so like there's, there's a fair number of those and um, it's, it's really remarkable. So this, this one guy, like he made his money off of a uh, real world, real world businesses. I won't describe what he does to just, you know, keep it more confidential, but it wasn't necessarily like, only software, although he did have a big software part of his career too. So, you know, those that let's say like, like, let's say that like me and the three people here, like we, we all made like a billion dollars, just like consolidating like a thousand gas stations across like uh, the South, right? Like that, that may not sound like the sexiest thing in the world for like software founders, but it probably is way sexier than <laughs> from like a revenue and like the quality of our business perspective, right? And, you know, but just because like you come from that space and you actually have money, like sometimes you, we even want the angel investments. We have no mechanism to actually find a uh, angel. Like we just don't have any deal flow. So they are out there. Um, an angel investor is also just like a very simple kind of definition for me. It's like anyone who, who meets accredited investor standards. So if you have a million dollars in liquid net worth or are making more than I think $200,000 a year, you, you essentially are allowed by law to do angel investments. Like you are an accredited investor based on those conditions. So, um, and there are angel investors out there who do not even know that they're angel investors. So if you're, if, for example, let's say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm building a- well, let, Let's hold on, this uh, might work for your example. So I found a lot of founders, you know, they hear this advice, go for angels. You know, that's the early money, don't go for the VCs. But their problem is that like, they don't know any angels. Maybe they're a software developer, you know, they've been at Facebook or something. And they've just been heads down coding. They haven't been out networking. They don't know any angels. What should they do? They just email Dave on LinkedIn and say, hey, Dave, you know, write me a check for 100K. Is that how it works? Yeah. Great. So let's take this example. I think, David, uh, you, you did some real estate before um, you, you switched over. Is that, I can't really quite remember uh, the history there. I've dabbled in, in a variety of things over the 20 years. And the, okay. most of my money in cryptocurrency is where I made my, had my biggest, my biggest uh, home runs. Let's pretend that you are like a real estate guy, right? Like, so um, in this case, let's pretend you you own like a bunch of apartments and you sort of like slowly bootstrap like this pretty good like uh, exposure across like um, Southeast Detroit or, some, or Southeast Michigan or something like that. Yeah, maybe and, 400 units um, or something like $5 million. Yeah, network. something like that, right? So you're, you're clearly an accredited investor. And let's say uh, Amanda comes in as like this really awesome like tenant, like uh, real estate tech kind of company person. Um, you may not have any exposure to real estate tech, but Amanda is like the right kind of founder with, with like strategic help for your units. Um, you know, I would actually like, if I were her, just like reproach and be like, this is what I'm doing. It might be a pertinent to your, to, um, some of your units right now. So as a customer, but would you also be open to angel investing as well? Because I'm just getting started. So you can have some pieces upside and, you know, for this other imaginary person, David, like he may have never considered being an investor in this form, but he probably does have the liquidity, like $25,000 or $50,000 to put in some money. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing how quickly you can flip someone to becoming an angel investor. If it's like the right kind of opportunity that they understand. So I wouldn't necessarily go off like Crunchbase 
or AngelList as like your or or NFX Signal. That's another one that I really like. NFX Signal. Um, you can also just like go to like people, just the people who are going to be strategic in your industry, like a VP of product or VP of sales or director or something like that. Uh, that may meet that may meet that credit investor threshold, and they could potentially invest in your company. I like that feedback to go for angels who don't know their angels yet. I have angel list angel investor in my LinkedIn title, and so the problem I have is that somebody you know hits me up and says, "Hey, they put into my company." I've got a whole ton of deal flow, so for me to actually take an interest in that, you know, they've got to be I don't know the top you know one percent of or point one percent maybe of you know founders in the world. Uh, which is highly unlikely. So, you know, usually I just send them a response back about, you know, here's a form to fill out. Uh, whereas if I was in the situation you described where I can be an angel investor, but I don't know it, my deal flow is exactly one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, um, I think that like LinkedIn is like your best friend here, right? So one of the things I really like about this is, uh, yeah, you can you could do searches for things like angel investor on title and find people like David. Uh, another thing to do is just like find anyone who is like very senior and strategic in the industry that you're trying to serve and just, just reach out to them cold and accomplish maybe a couple things. The first is actually customer development. It's like, would you buy this service that I'm, uh, I'm building right now? So that's always useful to know. Yes or no. And the second is just like, Hey, we really get along well and you would be very strategic. Would you like to come on as a, an advisor? That's one relationship or a second is as, as an investor. That's another. And, um, I think that no one is offended by those questions, right? It's like, would you like to invest is actually a compliment of like, oh, well, yeah, thank you. No, <laughs> but thank you anyway. Or yeah, sometimes yes. Yeah, the investing and the advice is a compliment too. Okay, we've got 14 questions to get through. we got 18 minutes. Let's go into, into rapid fire mode. What, about one minute a piece, huh? Okay, Sam, this one, this one, what's that? Yeah, we'll try. <laughs> Sam, Sam, you've got the most upvoted question in coping with COVID history. <laughs> Sam, Sam's got nine votes. What things do I need to have done to get an investor? How many sales do I need to have if I have a great idea, but not the data? Will an angel investor help me build and scale the idea without the validation data yet? Oh, this question is perfect for you, Eric. I feel like we do this at fun. Yeah, so... The, I'm going to give you like the worst answer. It's like, I don't know. I, so like, and the reason why is like the, like the way the taste and heuristics that VCs, I think indexed towards change so much from fund to fund. Uh, so a few things like one, like I've seen founders, even in this market who like are in that 0.1% outlier greatness example uh, who have absolutely nothing, no deck. And then they raise like $5 million. Right. And like, so that still happens. Those who are maybe like, do not fit that profile, are competent and like have a great idea, but still too early. Um, it, it really does matter who you're speaking to. So in some uh, in today's environment, I'd say that traction is going to look be scrutinized much more. So, you know, did uh, Amanda like sign up like several pilots? What are the nature of those contracts? Do, um, you know, do they look like contracts that would have very high potential for retention based on user engagements? on her product and so forth. Like, I think you're going to see more scrutiny of that earlier than, than ever before. Usually like that kind of scrutiny starts to happen pretty deeply around series A and beyond. But even at seed, I'm seeing like uh, a lot of VCs asking my founders of like traction, 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 traction. Um, I think that <clears throat> the other thing too is, um, you know, 
the the business model and the 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 ability to actually make money again like talking about anti-fragility you know bootstrappers are all about revenue and trying to build going concerns uh going concern is a very simple definition to me it's like more money comes in than goes out that's all i know about business it's just that concept <laughs> Uh, and it's amazing how far removed that is for so many of the companies that are getting funding. So, you know, having a very crisp and clear explanation of like, here's how much it's going to cost us to acquire the users. Here's when like we hit profitability on that user, like the payback period. And then like, here's like what the lifetime value of the contract is going to be based on like whatever retention we're, we're assuming. Like just having at least some very crisp hypotheses at the very least on walking, um, walking, uh, your investor through that, I think is going to be incredibly important. Um, I think hypotheses will do it. I, I feel like if somebody tells me what they're going to do in the future, I don't care because they can tell me whatever and people will all tell me, you know, we're going to hockey stick. And so I just pretty much ignore projections and just look at past behavior. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, so David is a perfect example of like, I think what we also see too, which is just like, Scrutiny on track record is is coming back hard, right? I mean, like if if you actually shown that you can ship something really well and like grew a business, then that's great. Ideally, it's your, uh, your own independent company that you start from scratch. But like some of those like heuristics of like previous companies also is going to matter too. Uh, I'm like for for me, like I can I can work with hypotheses. Like there's a fair number of VCs that can. Uh, our, you're, our you're, like true, like, you're like a true angel. <laughs> uh, I'm more of like your uncle Bob. So like I'm I'm the guy who's just like I don't know about this kid, but uh, you know he's family. So uh, yeah, I mean like, uh, but we have a model that supports that. Like so, I, I don't want to get into the only reason I brought that up is I worry about giving founders the idea that they can go and pitch on ideas and that they spend a whole ton of time, maybe months or years, trying to raise on hypotheses and that they don't get anywhere and that they're frustrated. And, and so that's why I wanted to put my perspective on it because I find that most of the investors that I know who are serious about the craft are looking at that, at the track record. They were looking at it prior to the crisis and they're going to be looking even more now. And right now, like you said, Eric, I'm not deploying capital. I'm in this pause mode, but I really want to deploy capital and, and I'm an opportunistic person. And so if I saw somebody that's, you know, exploding right now, you know, that would make me get out my checkbook. Uh, if they're not exploding yeah. right now though, you know, I don't even want to like, you know, take their, take, take the meeting. Cause I'm just not going to invest. Well, so, too, you guys have a unique approach to helping founders navigate some, yeah. some of them, right? Yeah, I can talk about that as quickly as possible because I do want to get to others too. So like when I was an angel and I started off as an angel for six years before I started this fund, um, I wanted to see a lot more traction. I got ridiculously lucky. My very first company that I invested in was a company called Webflow. Uh, they're kind of like a really interesting website builder, like a web apps builder, currently at $330 million valuation. Don't give me skill. It's not skills. One hundred percent luck. I just was friends with Vlad, the founder, and uh, but like when I wrote that check to him, he already had a fully farmed product that I was prototype that I was playing with, and I was like, "This is so game changingly awesome!" Like, yes, I am ready. If you come to me the concept of being like Eric, I'm thinking about doing this like like Adobe Premiere or or like or Dreamweaver competitor or something like that, I'd be like. Uh, I don't know about that, right? As an institutional fund, like the way that we work is we're prepared to lose actually a lot of money on great ideas if they don't work out. So we start with a small 25K check. We're writing 150 checks of 25,000 to 150 teams. We then work with each team on some period of execution for four to six weeks. And that's when we get to really understand each other, uh, help you on areas of growth and sales and user acquisition. And then the founder is also judging us to see whether we're actually like strategic VCs. 
And for teams where we have high conviction about their ability to execute and working in good markets, we'll then concentrate a $250,000 to $1 million check into those businesses, um, asking your permission to do so. Uh, so for us, like institutionally, our model is like, let's take as much risk as possible on founders who are so early on 25,000. And it's okay if actually like 70% of them fail because we're only trying to find like, you know, a subset of those who, uh, where we build really great conviction and then we can pour the most of the capital of our fund against those businesses. Yeah. Thank you for, for explaining there. Yeah. I kind of got lost track. I love these. I love these answers. Let's, let's keep going in these questions. Okay. Next up, we got Carlos. Carlos, how can one estimate, one estimate our valuation and our competitors valuation cut? What makes sorry, would make a bridge if one were in between a series A round make sense after cutting costs and getting new traction in this context. So how do we, how are we estimating our valuation, our competitors drop in valuation? Yeah. So uh, let's start with that. So valuation is difficult. The answer is um, like it's supply and demand. It's just like your company is worth whatever people are going to give you money at. Um, so the way that I would raise as an early stage man- manager, I guess, or as a, uh, a CEO is everything through safes. So you can go to the Y Combinator website, download the YC safe. And it's a very simple document for, for setting terms on, uh, on, on, on investing in a company. So usually you talk to Angel, Amanda, and then you agree like, okay, you, we both agree that the company is worth $4 million right now. You're putting in like $400,000, like we're setting valuation cap at $4 million at $400,000 and then sign here and money is wired later today, ideally. So um, what I actually think is the way to, to pro- progress through this process is by like, let's say if you want to raise half a million dollars, you break this up into tranches. So you set one tranche of capital, let's say $100,000, your first hundred grand at a lower valuation than you think you're worth. But you want to hit up the, the angels and VCs they think are going to be most strategic. So you're going to give a sweetheart deal to David, like $100,000 on like a $2 million post, right? And then, you know, it's too low, so it's going to fill up pretty quickly. And then you do another like $250,000 after that, immediately after, at a higher valuation, $3 million or $4 million. And then another tranche after that, $100,000 or $250,000 at like $4 million, $5 million, $6 million, right? It's, it's sort of something that allows you to kind of like test the waters of where where your valuation lies, uh, given the market, sort of like dollar cost averaging your way in. And I think actually, uh, because this market is so volatile uh, and valuations are dropping pretty substantially, that might actually be the way to go to just not predict what your valuation should be out of the gate, but just kind of like slowly tranche up the capital. Maybe not so slowly, but at least like starting a little bit lower and knowing that you're going to go higher. I like that. And that's completely the norm. Yeah. And then you get those Um, first investors, they are further friends too. And yeah. then too, because they're in the deal and it'll, they'll get marked up. I like that answer a lot. Next up, we've got Stefan here with lessons learned in 2008, over leverage, et cetera. Why are VC backed startups having so many layoffs already? <laughs> was a rainy day fund not created? I like that question. The rainy day <laughs> fund was never created. I mean, like, <laughs> there's yeah. like, a, the, there's a, so if you're going to be starting a company, you have to be, sort of ridiculously crazy in in many ways, right? Like the world is always against you when it comes to new ideas, right? Until they're not, right? So with founders, I think the indexing of optimism is is, is way over-indexed on optimism. So, you know, there's even articles I read like 
earlier this year that are like, this bull run is going to continue forever, right? Like we're post-recession, right? From like economists from like JP Morgan and stuff like this. And uh, that's, that's absolutely nuts, right? Like that there's, there's no evidence of that. And I think founders who, um, and this is where I, I now realize I'm like an old guy because I was like a founder during the great recession. And then I, was, I, I lived through .com as a college student, at least in Silicon Valley, um, where it's just like, okay, I've seen this before. That's, that was kind of like my, my reaction when this started happens, like same old shit again, right? Uh, but the second thing too, is just like, you know, founders who actually started their careers after the great recession, um, I, I don't think like have as good instincts in terms of like what it takes to survive the wartime periods. So, um, you know, a lot of founders I, I speak to just like understand like peacetime, what it means to be in like a world of abundance and milk and honey. So, um, yeah, like they're overcapitalized. They didn't save enough on their balance sheet. Runway is okay. If, if, if there wasn't much left, I've seen tons of company raise with only three months left you know, with, with the expectation that they'll turn around in the next month and raise another $15 million. Right. So, um, when you're, when you're operating like that for, let's say two years or three years, let's say the four of us were co-founders like that. And we're, you know, we've never seen a really the, the trough of the great recession, then we can't just hit a switch and say like, now we're wartime. Now we're going to lay off 70% of our staff. Now we're going to like reduce our, our, our salaries by like 80% for the next two years. Like it, it's just not something I think you're conditioned to understanding how to do very quickly. So this is the opportunity for the anti-fragile business, right? I was just like, look, these people are so screwed because they just don't know how to operate in wartime. I have been operating in wartime since day one because no one believed in me, but I'm right. And everything is flipped. So they raised with a plan and now the plan is destroyed. And that's why they're having massive layoffs is because the plan doesn't work anymore. And they want to like still stay alive. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and just be explicit. The plan was to always just continue to raise. <laughs> right. Uh, next up, we've got Mark. What is your recommendation for how a company should offer for an investment, preferred stock, convertible note, or safe? I know convertible note safe are intended for future funding valuations. Well, if you're not planning on raising more funds after pre-seed, how would a funder approach that? I think there's two uh, things. There. One, is, yeah. one is what's the mechanism for raising? And then two, if you're not planning on raising more funds after pre-seed, how would a funder approach that? Maybe uh, so never raising, raising again, maybe. Yeah, great question. It's a very interesting technical question. So safes is what I like. You don't have to get any lawyers involved. You download the form from the website, Y Combinator. Uh, and it's very easy for people to read through. It's like as lame in a document as you can get. Um, and you're good to go. Money gets wired. Now, this is where it gets a little bit technical. So when you raise on a safe or convertible note, it's essentially an IOU that you're issuing. So Let's say that I raise um, uh, $1 million on a $10 million post-money valuation on the business, so uh, on a valuation cap. So essentially, virtually, I sold 10% of my, mis of my business, right? $1 million divided by $10 million is $10 million. But if it's all done via safes, technically, I have not issued any shares of my business yet. The share issuance tends to happen um, once, you run a, once you raise a priced round, so I won't go into the, like too much of the details of this, but like when you set like uh, do a later raise at like a higher valuation, but it's priced, uh, that's when share issuance happens. And that's when your earlier safes convert into shares, right? Now the conundrum that's being raised here is like, let's say that you raise like a million dollars in the scenario all on safes and that's all you ever need for the rest of your life. And then uh, you're good, right? Where I get screwed as an investor would be like, oh, like tops did this and then, 
he never has to raise money again. And he's going to run this business for the rest of his life. And he's making like hundreds of millions of dollars a year or something like that. And like, it's great. And I think you're talking about TopTel right there. Yeah. So TopTel exactly was like a, had a very interesting kind of case study in this. So in this case, it's just like, when am I going to convert into shares? Like I'm technically like getting like no value out of this, even though the founders are getting great value. Don't cry for your investor necessarily, but that's like a, a very interesting kind of strain. Um, another sort of interesting uh, outcome would be like, um, well, let's get into how, do, how, do, how, do, how does, should they approach, how should the founder approach that? Well, I think it's usually investor led discussion as well of just like, can we just convert this to shares? Because you can always do that. You know, it's just like when your business is at the right kind of maturity, asking for the conversion is very important so that, um, you know, it can actually happen. You get shares issued to you. Why is share, share issuance very important? This is actually one of the most effed up things I learned about being a VC, about why rich people get richer. So there is a very interesting law called qualified small business stock, where, which basically it means like if I were to invest into a Delaware C-Corp business in the United States, and, ascent, and I'm not going to go through all the rules, but and then essentially that I hold my shares that are issued to me for at least five years. And then after five years, that founder sells the company or IPOs. I will be federally exempt of paying taxes and in some cases completely exempt of state taxes too. That means I don't pay any taxes. So like if I get a billion dollar outcome on, on uh, Amanda's company, I don't pay a, any a cent of, of tax, right? It's qualified small business stock. Why did we do this? The reason why was during the Great Recession, Congress passed QSBS so that it would incent small business, uh, uh, rich people to invest in small businesses with this massive tax break. So it's like, hey, you got to put your money to work, right? Like there's no liquidity in the market in 2008. Like, why don't we pass this law? And then like, um, if, if the companies like do great, then you pay no taxes, right? Pump money into the economy this way. We never change that law. Mm. All right. So if you, if you actually, in this case, raise off of a safe, never convert it. And then like, let's say you exit for a billion dollars. I don't qualify for QSBS because I didn't have that five-year waiting period of my shares just sitting there. So I have to pay taxes. So, you know, don't cry for me, but like, that's, that's, what's going to happen. Um, but if you do convert and I get to five years and I get to pay no taxes, guess what? All of my investors on my fund also don't pay taxes either. So what? all of us don't pay taxes on a massive liquidity event. Pretty I awesome, have- right? Eric, this has been great. I love how you've been diving in here. I think we could do this all day. We're going to have to have you on again sometime here, here on Coping with COVID. Can everybody? Yeah. everybody, everybody, well, everybody Eric, do you have five, 10 minutes to maybe take a couple more? If not, we understand and we'll try to answer some. But if you can stay on a few more minutes, we'd love oh it. Oh my gosh, yeah. man, I'm the pressure on. I, no, it's totally fine. I'm uh, actually I'm quite flexible for like, say, another 10 minutes if there's some other questions out there. Okay. Well, and if the audience is uh, yeah. able to. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, so next question is, what sort of awareness has COVID-19 brought to the general public that could turn spin the leverage, the founders of sustainable companies? I feel like we did touch a little bit on that. Is there anything you want to add on what sort of leverage founders have? Um, man, that is a very interesting question. Um, I've never heard this kind of framing yet because uh, my, my, my sentiment is actually fairly negative in terms of the leverage that founders have. Like it's, as I mentioned earlier in this, in, in, in this, uh, this chat, like I do think that the pendulum has swung more in the direction of the investors of having far more leverage in these discussions. Valuations are going to drop. 
due diligence periods are going to last longer. Capital is going to be harder to unlock, uh, just like generally for some period of time. But um, again, like uh, the only lever I can sort of think of, um, maybe less so from like an investor perspective, is just that, you know, if you're just already born into like being super capital efficient and uh, operating mm-hmm. with a bootstrapper mindset, the leverage I would actually look for is less so on like how I can unlock this for investors later. The best way to do that right now is frankly to just run a good business. Like that's basically all you can do at this point. But I would immediately start doing cold LinkedIn outreaches to all of the line leadership of your competitors. So who is the VP sales product uh, engineering of all of your competitors? Do cold LinkedIn outreaches and then slowly start dripping Zoom coffees with them. Just be like, hey, I just wanted to introduce yourself. Like I'm Amanda and I'm running this fintech company. And like, you know, I just thought that'd be nice for us to, to get to know one another. They're going to be laid off at some point. And then you might I be able to pick them up for cheap. Interesting. I like I like that sniper strategy. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, we did talk about the next question from Jose, how to build relationships with investors. I think we did a pretty good walkthrough um, when you're working from home. Is there any other thoughts? I mean, Eric, maybe is there anyone you're building a relationship with? Are you doing a lot of Zoom yeah. calls? Any coffee? So, yeah, I do a lot. I'm on Zoom all day long. This this garage is actually just, I, I sit in front of it for like 10 hours a day, just doing Zooms back to back. Um, but like, I'll sort of give you the, the sneakier way of doing this, which is actually Twitter. So most VCs are very active on Twitter right now. And frankly, like it's a bit of like a, a pissing match of just like who has like the most followers, who's like the biggest influencer and so forth. And I, I, I have to admit, I am much more like inclined to talk to someone if I formed a relationship with them on Twitter. Like if they're actually asking me really good questions, retweeting my stuff, I'm just like seeing them on my feed all the time. Like it's, it's actually like, I feel like it's almost like rude. <laughs> for me to like not give them some of my time because like they've invested it. So like uh, a few things I would actually recommend doing is, and this is so weird is like one, like, yeah, begin engaging with some investors that, uh, that you respect or those that are just sharing very interesting information uh, on Twitter and, you know, start to form those conversations on their tweets too. Like that's just a good place to start. The second is also potentially trying, trying to build a little bit of your own brand on Twitter too. So if you're operating in a very interesting market, you have some thought leadership in an area and you can gain some followers, VCs will want to follow people who actually are teaching them stuff too. That's the primary criteria that I have. And I think that like that is probably the very best mechanism I've seen of just online warming of relationships. I love that. Next question, uh, is PitchBook a worthwhile startup investment uh, for founders? No. <laughs> Absolutely no. not. It's a waste well, of money. You did mention another site earlier that you like uh, that I think a couple of people are commenting on NXF. Oh, yeah, NFX. So I'll write this in the chat right now. It's a NFX signal. I think actually it's like one of the better, um, I guess, directories of angels and VCs I've seen to date. They have a really good automation for, for just pulling lots of information there. PitchBook is so expensive. Even I don't want to pay for PitchBook, and I don't. I just use someone else's account. Uh, but it's like ridiculously expensive, so not worth it. And Kim's saying Founder Suite over there in the chat. Yeah, Founder Suite's pretty good. I've uh, I've played around with it for a little bit. Yeah. 
right, next question. Or right. um, Tops, you want to jump in on a few? I was going to say that he has more questions than we had for Brad. People <laughs> love you. Eric, you're the fan favorite, huh? I don't know about that. Let's see how the next few questions go. Uh, uh, the next one's from Alan. Uh, what does making a company... How does making a company affect COVID-19, how they raise money? Uh, we, I think, Colin, I think we talked a lot about that. Do you want to just sit, maybe give a shout out to Colin? <laughs> he's, a, <laughs> he's tuning in. Um, uh, I didn't quite catch the question. So how does COVID-19, what was that? Affect fundraising right now because it's a tough Oh, yeah. Time. I think we talked about yeah. that a lot. <laughs> it's, it's just generally bad, right? That's, that's basically the TLDR that you got to know. Um, but it's always possible. But here, I guess let me try to get a little bit more tactical here. So from a VC investor's perspective, I mentioned that like from Great Recession data, the trough happened about one year after the start of the recession in 2008. So I think a lot of VCs have learned a lesson there, which is just like, we should just sit on our capital until Q4 or Q1. So I do think that um, the ability to unlock capital gets a, a little bit easier, although it'll be at a lower valuation towards the end of this year and early next year. So you may actually want to consider timing your, your fundraising efforts around that period of time. Um, but that said, like if you're business is business and like you have to start your company when you have to start your company and when the opportunity is there. And sometimes you have to raise when you have to raise. So like if it's urgent or it's needed or strategic to do so now, then like, yes, like I think you'll have to be a little more savvy to do it, but it's possible else. Like if you're trying to unlock more VC oriented money, um, yeah, end of this year is probably the way to do it. Like people are just sitting on their hands right now. Not us though. <laughs> at hustlefund.vc. Uh, that's where uh, we're still rock and roll in one a week. Yeah. Okay, next up we've got Luis. What's your advice for early stage founders working on deep tech products outside of North America looking to raise pre-seed with concrete plans to open a Delaware Corp as soon as possible? Oh boy. So out of the country. Do you, do you look at out of the country? What are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. We invest in Southeast Asia pretty heavily. You, uh, so Vietnam, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, Philippines, those are kind of our core markets right now um, for about a third of our fund. Um, another like 15% to 30% is in Canada and the rest are uh, throughout the United States. So uh there's a lot of interest, I think for us as a fund, at least uh, just in these regions, we don't support South America yet. Uh, Africa, Europe, I'd like to at some point, but we just we just don't have capacity to do it yet. And so is there um, any advice that's different for people who are outside of the U.S. when they're trying to raise so, money? In, yeah, in the, uh, the Delaware C Corp thing is very important. So this is actually one of the most BS things, a, a piece, like easy piece of feedback that VCs never share. Let's go back to QSBS. If you're not a Delaware C Corp specifically, I don't get that QSBS treatment, right? So like if you're a Singaporean entity, We'll still invest in it, maybe, but like, uh, I don't get that 100% tax exemption by the time, by the time you exit, right? That, that's actually a really subtle but a very important part of the economics of a VC fund. So you got to do it. And setting up a Delaware C Corp as a foreign company is very easy. It's actually like a $300, $600 kind of thing, and you got one. Um, now, raising a deep tech company right now, who yeah. boy. I think it's actually very difficult because uh, deep tech tends to have a, a lot of capital requirements, right? Like before you're able to commercialize the business, maybe you, you need the robot built or the autonomous vehicle built or like the, the you know, COVID-19 vaccine ready or something, right? And that just tends to take a lot more R&D and capital. So 
um, putting together that kind of capital raise is really hard. Um, I like software because like the four of us on, on uh, who are hosting right now could have an idea and probably like just with our own funds get to like a prototype before we go out to raise like with like zero capital because software is just code, right? Um, building like a robot that like you need metal, <laughs> uh, chips, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, right? Like shit I don't understand. So um, I think that uh, uh, it's going to be very, very hard. Now, if you're overseas, there's a different kind of funding mechanism that I would really look harder on, which is actually corporations. So CVCs have a much bigger role in like places like Asia than they do in the United States, right? Like there's Intel capital and all that here, Google ventures possibly, but like CVC, you mean corporate venture capital? Corporate venture capital. Yeah. So think of like Tencent capital, think of like, uh, you know, grab has like a, a VC fund as well for their ride sharing. And so like, they actually are pretty important players in the VC ecosystem. And, um, but also just like traditional corporations too. So let's say that you're doing a mining business. Um, you can actually talk to like mining companies in Southeast Asia or Indonesia or something like that. And they usually do have some sort of corporate venture capital. It could be highly strategic for your mining app or something that you're trying to build or your robot that digs holes. So um, I wouldn't discount those, uh, like talking to those corporate development heads and seeing whether they have mechanisms for investing. Okay. Next up, we've got Raven. Raven's been, a, I think, a big fan of the show for a few episodes. How do business owners seek investors in general? I've heard a lot about it, but don't know where to start in terms of seeking one. Yeah. And I feel like we've we've uh, covered that one. Let's let's hop to another one. This one is I think from we have one minute left. I know. I is a big fan. Automation Works uh, Inc. is a virtual cybersecurity school that prepares students for Cisco certification exams utilizing AI-empowered games and digital simulations to replace group lecture. Everyone tells me I should not seek investors right now. However, the economist in me tells me I should move forward both in fundraising and adding students. Can you do that without fundraising? I mean, like the cool thing about education is, um, you know, there's tuition usually involved. So if there's like mechanisms for you to invest in uh, user acquisition, with maybe tuition payment up front, that actually could be like a pretty good bridge in itself that's non-dilutive for uh, unblocking some some capital. So, so like, I mean, like get sales from your customers to get the capital you need. Yeah. And that'll fund your so, business now, and then that'll help you later to get money from investors, right? I'll, I'll give you a, a real a real time, real example. So I ran an education enterprise company uh, for nine years. And uh, so we were selling software to schools at $100,000 a year. And when we started this... Um, we actually pre-sold, meaning like we actually made the sales before the software was developed. And the, the, the idea was this. It was just like, Amanda, you run like Amanda University, like use our software. And uh, it's 100000 a year. But if you pay me $80,000 right now, like you, you can get like take advantage of that $20,000 discount. And then we will uh, ship you the software in four months when it's ready. Right. And uh that worked. Like we got like half a million dollars out of the gate just doing that. So I think like in, in the case of like enterprise sales, possibly even education, if there's ways for you to structure the payment terms to be upfront, uh, maybe with discount for doing so. And also adding this is actually exclusivity. So I forgot this really important part of the story. Like why did they pay me 80,000 and so forth? Like, yes, the discount was nice, but I also added this was just like, by the way, we're only running uh, this beta with six clients right now. 
So there's only six slots available and there's not going to be a seventh, at least for six months, right? Uh, yeah. That FOMO'd a bunch of people into these contracts. So you, you might want to try something that, similar with, with your school too. It's like, it's only going to be exclusive to 30 students, you know, $10,000 a piece or $5,000 a piece, whatever the price point is. And there's going to be no more slots after that. Right? Eric, I think that's a big point that I hope everybody in the audience caught. What I've run into sometimes with companies, startups trying to sell into companies is the company just waits. For one startup I was at, we were in a sales cycle with a large company for two years and the deal never closed. And from their perspective, they never had to. You know, We weren't putting any pressure on them to make the thing close. And I love what you did to put pressure on them and say, hey, if you don't do it now, you're missing the chance. You're missing the opportunity. So they got to move or they miss it. Yeah. Um, this this might be like the last question we take, but I want to share a really quick story here of one of the best examples of pre-selling I've ever seen in my life. So um, there's a company that we invested in on our first fund called Boom Supersonic. They're making a supersonic jet that goes Mach 2.1 uh, for commercial passengers. It's a 60-seater all-business class uh, plane. So an airplane takes a while to make, like three or four or five years of like R&D before you actually ship it. But they have many, many, many billions of pre-orders right now. So how do they actually pull that off? How do you actually sell a supersonic jet that hasn't been created and with all like the vast amounts of pre-orders to date? The way that you do this is you go to the number two. So it turns out that the world is divided into like five primary regions of, of, of travel hubs. So you have like uh, EMEA, like the Middle East, Europe, North America, South America, Asia, and Africa. There are competitors with each of those markets, even if they're international carriers. And instead of going to the number one carrier, you go to the number two carrier and you say, look, I'm going to give you a five-year exclusivity on having my supersonic jet and you will be the only carrier in the region offering this differentiated business class experience. And it's going to be your shot of becoming number one, right? And that FOMO'd the shit out (laughs) of all of those carriers into doing crazy amounts of pre-orders. You don't go to number one because they're already number one. Like there's not an incentive there. Number two is going to feel the chip on the shoulder to buy in. They so if you operate that, in the take that risk to take a shot at number one, whereas number one can only lose by having the thing blow up. You got it. So like I, if you're operating in this kind of analogous market where there's clear number twos uh, that you can sell to, go to them, go to the number three after that, go to the number four after that, and then maybe go to the number one at the very end. I love it. Eric, yeah. Like Thank you so much for being here. Let's let's everybody in the chat, you know, you can put your virtual claps in there. And Eric, thank you for sharing. This has been, I've thank loved it. This was super helpful. I know a few of the comments were people wanting to just talk directly to you. Should they go to the website, follow you on Twitter? How do you prefer? Yeah. So if you're, if you're looking for funding right now and want to get some feedback, uh, our website's great. It's uh, hustlefund.vc. Every single company, whether it's a warm referral or cold inbound lead, uh, has to go through our website through the exact same form. So that's how we actually organize all of our efforts as a team. That's hustlefund.vc, Victor Charlie. Um, if you're just interested in having more of like a broader chat, like I think Twitter is frankly the best scale way to do it. I'm at Eric Bond, E-R-I-C-B-A-H-N, E-R-I-C-B-A-H-N. And mm-hmm. uh, you can follow me, you can, or not. And then just like, we can engage that way too. And I'm more than happy to, to talk and we can all learn together through that mechanism too. Thank but you. I guess that part, I, I stopped talking to you. I just... Huge thank you again uh, to this group, uh, David, Amanda, Tops. Like you guys were so awesome uh, in, in putting this series together. I think it's an incredible service that you're providing for the the tech community just generally. So 
thank you so much for that. And I really appreciate this opportunity and for the audience as well. Just thank you so much for great questions too. And for listening. Thank you. Everyone will see you next time on coping with COVID. Thank you for listening to our coping with COVID series brought to you by bamboo Detroit. If you would like to view all of our virtual episodes, you can go to www.crowdcast.io forward slash David Silva Smith. Again, that's forward slash D-A-V-I-D-S-I-L-V-A-S-M-I-T-H. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Bamboo Detroit, located in the heart of downtown Detroit. Bamboo Detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers. Bamboo Detroit, where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, you will be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bamboodetroit.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on the Doers Network. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doers Podcast, where actives grow and thrive. The Doers Podcast is produced by Bamboo Detroit Network. For more information, visit us at bamboodetroit.com.